Hello, my name is Rachel Fleming Alford and I'm the curator for Ellismith's exhibition Fontalot. And I'm really just here to welcome you all this evening and to welcome Emma and our speakers. Um, uh, so this tonight's event is the final event as part of the public programme that's accompanied uh, the Wonder Plot Expression, which um, was commissioned by the Hidden Persuaders Project at Birkbeck University of London, with funding from Welcome. Um, well, I'm going to say a little bit about Emma, and just to also quickly let you know that we are recording tonight's event, we're going to be taking a few photos as well, and we'd really love to get your feedback at the end, so either by filling one of the exhibition feedback forms, or if you just want to leave some comments and stick them on the door there with a post of that, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, so Emma Smith is a visual artist whose work explores the human condition and the relationships that inform our understanding of the world. Her work includes site-specific installations, text, sound, scripts, performance, games and interactive objects. Emma has a social practice which means that she develops work in collaboration and in conversation with other people. And she has worked with hundreds of thousands of participants from two months to 109 years old including with 250 schools. Previous UK commissioners include Tate Modern, Barbican, Whitechapel Gallery, Camden Arts Centre, the ICA, Whitworth, Arnolfini, Keffel's Yard, and her international projects span the globe from the Canadian Arctic to Australia. So enough from me, I'm gonna hand over to Emma now, who's going to tell you a little bit more about the format of tonight and introduce the speakers as well. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. It feels funny because we're all on the level, but can everyone kind of feel like they can see us, or do we need to do some bum shuffling? Because we're going to probably sit. Does that feel okay? Um, so I'm going to introduce um, all of our speakers as we go, so that you know who you're hearing from directly. Um, we're each going to speak for about 10 minutes, and then we're going to open up into a conversation to which you're all invited to join. So I know we've got some fantastic people also in the audience who are far more knowledgeable about than I am, about many of the things we're going to talk about. Um, so it'd be great to have your input also. So if you have comments or questions as we go along, then do please hold on to them and um, ask them at the end, because we'll have time to do that. Um, so as Rachel said, Wonderful Art was commissioned by the Hidden Persuaders Project at Birkbeck. And their research looks at brainwashing in the post-war period. And so my commission was specifically to consider this in relationship to the child. Um, the post-war concern about raising healthy, democratic citizens and the resulting focus on the development of the child's mind in this period. And so my work draws on research from across the Hidden Persuaders project team, uh, but in particular in relation to the work of Katie Joyce. So in researching the exhibition, which I don't know how many of you have had the chance to go around, um, the house, but I was um, drawn to or pointed to in the Hidden Persuaders research to the works of Margaret Lohenfeld, Rennie Spitz, Donna Winnicott, John Bowlby, Anna Freud, Melanie Klein, as well as Lang and the anti-Sai movement. And there were many sort of sources and references I was drawing on in, in developing the work. But really this is the core of the Hidden Persuaders project is to consider influence. And so for me in coming to that idea, in thinking about influence and inculcation, I was very much sort of thinking of this as having implicit within it the idea of susceptibility. And so without denying the vulnerability of children, I wanted to reflect back on the research, its counterpoint of the child's agent. And so to consider what is innate to the child 
the unique expertise of the child and the ways in which they in turn can influence the adult world. So to recalibrate these histories and make the proposition within this research of the child as hidden persuader. So I'm not sure whether you've seen the exhibition or not, but I thought I'd just do a quick sort of um, summary of what, what it entails and why, um, just to give you some context for what we're going to discuss this evening. So the works in the exhibition all consider in, in some way the ways in which children influence the adult world. And this is really encapsulated in the A to Z, which you may well have seen in order to get up to this space, um, which is the alphabetical frieze, which climbs the stairs. And the words in this frieze were collected through an, an invitation to psychoanalysts, th therapists and experts on things that children do to influence others. And I then took those words to a group of two to four-year-olds um, and figured out what they really meant um, and what they would look like if you were going to express them visually. Um, and so the paintings that I've made are uh, directly taken from inspiration from these um, workshops, the paintings of these three to four-year-olds. Uh, there's a sound work in Anna Freud's study, which is just next door, called Milk Tongue, and this continues this theme of influence. Um, and is a collection of a lullaby that's created um, from sounds evoked in adults when communicating with babies, so thinking about parentese, and I made this through a series of quite intimate field recordings made with parents with babies under one in their own homes. Um, in World Play, which is in the main exhibition space behind us, there are a number of sculptural toys which celebrate really the creativity, imagination and play of infancy. Um, and this really is a sort of area of expertise of the child world which we may retain or lose in adulthood. Um, a sculpture sits on Anna Freud's desk next door which is called The First Object in the World and this is a cast of a transitional object. Um, uh, but it's cast in a food safe silicon to create a chewable version so we've not had anyone sucking it yet but potentially you could and that'd be fine. Um, and this really was a sort of uh, totem to Winnicott's idea of that the, ch the world has no meaning and for the child until it is both created and discovered. And so this possibility with, it, with, ev with every child you have this ability to produce the world anew and I just thought this was actually quite an extraordinary profound idea actually. Um, and then there are a number of interventions across the museum um, which are just kind of into the building or collection itself. So at the bottom of the door as you arrive or depart, there is a little secret door to next door, which is um, child size only. Um, and uh, on Freud's desk and next to his desk within the study, I've drawn out from his collection of items, all of the items within his own collection that relate to childhood or youth, of which there are 13 out of 2,000. Um, but just to kind of draw his attention and the attention of the museum to this theme over the run of the exhibition. And then in the um, play exhibition space behind us, I've inserted an uh, infant observation chamber, but set at toddler height. So it's inverting the idea of infant observation and creating a space from which toddlers might um, keep an eye on us. So the idea for this evening is really to have the opportunity to discuss in more detail some of the ideas and thinking that emerged in the making of this work and from exploring the work of the Hidden Persuaders project. And in creating the exhibition, I hope to create an interesting lens that would reflect back on that research of the Persuaders Project, but also situating it within the broader context of the evolution of childhood and also the contemporary positioning of the child in society today. So for me, I think in coming to this as a new uh, topic or area, I was quite surprised at how influential this post-war period still is or how present it still is in a lot of contemporary thinking. And for me, two key areas really stood out, and these were the establishment of normativity and assessment of children, 
and then the laying of responsibility with mothers. And so these are the two of the areas which we're going to address as part of the discussion this evening. So starting with the idea of normativity and assessment, the post-war interest in the developing child's mind grew out of a number of factors happening all simultaneously in this moment. So there was obviously a concern after the war for the impact that it had on children, either who had experienced it directly um, or who had been separated from or lost parents as a result. A state concern as to how to not raise future fascists or communists. The growth of the nursery school movement that allowed the mass observation of children in direct relationship to each other for the first time. And alongside this, the growth of child cybernetic practices. And so there was a lot happening, really, in this era, which led to this focus on the developing child's mind. And lots of that has, in various ways, fed into mainstream policy, parental guidance, education, in different ways which kind of touch on people outside of what people who might think of themselves as engaging in the psychoanalytic world. And so through our conversations, we hope to explore some of the nuance of that influence, so to consider the ways in which the psych professions did, but also did not influence thinking around child rearing, both historically and today. Um, so to begin with, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Anthony Netzenstein, who's going to set some context of what the psychoanalytic process of working with children and parents involves, and especially thinking about infant observation, which has been quite important to me in thinking about this exhibition. Um, Anthony is a child and adolescent psychotherapist, a child and adult psychoanalyst, and a fellow of the British Psychoanalytic Society. She currently works in private practice across a range of ages and teaches at the Tavistock Clinic, the Institute of Psychoanalysis and abroad. Previously, she worked for many years as a consultant child psychotherapist in the adolescent and young adult adult service at the Tavistock. So thank you very much, Anthony, for joining us. Well, uh, uh, I'm very pleased to contribute to this. Obviously, it will be a bit hard to condense everything into 10 minutes, what child analysis <laughs> might have contributed since... Um, the Second World War, but uh, <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, so I'm very much a clinician um, coming from work with uh, children and adolescents. Um, and obviously being here, Freud, uh, as you may all know, never worked directly with children. He was very interested in childhood and obviously had the revolutionary contribution of infantile sexuality, um, but he, he didn't take children in treatment apart from little Hans, who was a, a troubled boy who had lots of anxieties, where he advised the father how to talk to him about his anxieties and how to understand it. Um, and it was then really only he, uh, the next generation um, uh, that uh, worked directly with children and got fascinated in um, the, the ways children express from early on um, their view of the world, their anxieties about the world. And um, so the, there were three pioneers that Emma already mentioned. Um, Melanie Klein, who started her work with small children in Berlin before the war, Anna Freud, Freud's daughter here next door, and uh, Donald Winnicott, who worked as a pediatrician and saw many uh, mothers and babies, and so his focus was also very much of the very early relationship between <coughs> mothers and babies. 
Um, but these three child analysts have had also a big influence on, on um, also the whole psychoanalytic theory, certainly in, in Britain, how um, uh, people were thought about. So the shift was very much to uh, an interest in development, not so much the symptoms and where symptoms would come from, but really development, what blocks development, how can we understand um, how the emotional uh, anxieties would stop a child from learning or from uh, settling down in a in the school or settling down in an adoptive placement and how can they be helped to rejoin the more um, normal development. Um, and <coughs> even though these three pioneers had a lot of differences in their uh, theoretical ideas, in their technique, and there were fears discussions between them, just the fact that they, all three of them, I think, shared very much a passion um, about trying to understand about children, made London really a centre of child analysis um, and has, you know, has been internationally, you know, people came here to, to learn and, and um, and so a lot of things were developed um, in how to use play. Um, of course, psychoanalysis started very much with adult patients talking about their problems. Um, these uh, practitioners very quickly realized there was no point in getting children on the couch and asking them to talk. You know, they had to follow their play, their way of expressing themselves. Um, as you said, you know, drawing became very important. But of course, there are also many children who exactly can't do that, you know, and need to be helped to find ways of expressing themselves and again which anxieties would interfere with um, with their capacity to express themselves also in a more symbolic way. So uh, and as Emma also referred to one of the methods that really um, also help people in their understanding of, of infants and, and children that one analyst um, as the big developed here in London was infant observation. So that sounds, you know, a bit, um, you know, like a, um, more academic studies of children, but it's, it's actually a method where um, the students go into a family one hour a week um, from, well, sometimes for the first year or sometimes for the first two years and really expose themselves to the uh, following the development of uh, an individual personality. So the emphasis is on 
picking up the emotional atmosphere, the emotional relationships, trying to understand how is this particular infant establishing the relationship with the mother, father, wider family, and how do you get, how do the anxieties, the challenges get resolved in this family. So it's, the um, view is very much on the individual um, uh, being interested in um, how that gets negotiated in, in each family, in each constellation, in, in different ways. Um, how different patterns um, continue over time, how changes happen, important changes from the extreme anxieties in the beginning about often uh, life and death uh, to rivalries, to equal negotiation of how uh, is the third person involved. And um, the emphasis is that the observer not only observes these developments in the family, but of course also observes the reactions in themselves. So that also what Melanie Klein called the memories and feelings that we all continue to have um, traces of our own infantile self, our own child self, that will also be evoked when we observe the intensity of these relationships. So, just to say that um, still influences, it's now part of um, almost all psychoanalytic trainings in, in Britain and in some other um, countries worldwide and has really changed um, also what one thinks the analytic attitude is about because it also <coughs> focuses so much on the pre-verbal expressions and the tension to also bodily reactions uh, in oneself, in, in the patient, which again probably contributes to understanding silent patients. So just to say, um, also this year is 70 years of the Association of Child Psychotherapists who are who are the analytically trained um, therapists who work in the health service and lots of voluntary organizations and who are constantly trying to help children who get stuck in their development and who get stuck also with the modern with the challenges of the modern world. So I think um, they also need the capacity to face uncertainties, um, how these children experience the traumas, challenges of the modern world that we might also refer to. So I hope that's okay. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to move um, directly on to our second speaker, Michelle Bahain. Um, thank you very much, Angela. It was great. 
Um, Charles is going to speak on psychoanalysis and childhood in the age of welfareism in Britain. Uh, Charles is a lecturer in the Department of Sociology at the University of Essex, and his research specialisms include the intellectual history of psychoanalysis and the other 20th century side disciplines, the history of childhood and critical theory. And his forthcoming book is The Maternalist, Psychoanalysis, Motherhood and the British Welfare State. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, for, thanks for the invitation. It's, it's great to, to be here to, to discuss these topics. Um, and um, so, yeah, so we are, I'm trying to kind of to really to follow up from, from where you ended up or where you, be, or where you began and to talk about the influence of um, of psychoanalysis on perception of childhood in Britain in the in the in the mid 20th century the, the long mid 20th century let's say 1920 to 1970 it's it's quite long but or 1960 um, now because it is of course impossible to do it in 10 minutes um, I will pick two two case studies which I want to to, to say a few things about about them the one from the early 1920s and one from the mid 1950s, and um, we can discuss later how maybe we, maybe it will help us to see some of the changes that um, in, in the in the, in the perception of children um, shaped by psychoanalysis, but also um, some of the differences um, in the way we understand parenthood and the parental role. Um, so. So the first case study is um, is is the Melting House boarding school. I don't know how many of you heard of it, but this was um, this was a progressive, um, or so-called progressive. We can discuss what is a progressive, but progressive democratic, the kind of democratic uh, boarding school for very young children that operated uh, between 1924-1927 in um, in Cambridge. Um, it wasn't the only progressive school at that period, there were quite a few, and I think um, it was partly a, a, a consequence of or intellectual, a new way of thinking which, which um, we can trace back to the end of the First World War, um, where there was this assumption that, um, that, uh, that, that we should think of, uh, of authority and violence as uh, things that related to each other. And, and to think how to educate our children in a, in a non-authoritarian way. Um, so it was founded by Jeffrey Pike um, and headed by the psychiatrist, and, by the psychoanalyst and educationalist Susan Isaacs. Um, and it attempted to educate children without forcing any authority on them in most aspects in their life. Um, the school accommodated <coughs> over the year children between the age of two years and seven months and eight years and six months. These are very young children. Uh, it started as a day school, but after a year it became a boarding school as well. And by the third year, around a third of the children were living at the school. The children came from, um, from very wealthy socioeconomic backgrounds, and some of their parents were central figures in the intellectual community of Cambridge. So we have, for example, um, among these children, uh, the daughter of uh, Edgar Adrian, um, a neurophysiologist who won the Nobel Prize in 1932, and um, the two sons of the philosopher G. E. Moore. Um, it also should be noted that um, the Madinghouse elitism was not so different from other interwar progressive uh, schools. 
that were part of what one historian defined as um, a world shaped by white heterosexual middle class privileges. So, so this was um, what we can learn from this experiment. We, I mean, I think we can learn quite a lot, but we should bear in mind that this, uh, these were very kind of uh, privileged children, or children from very privileged uh, families. The children were free to decide whether and what to learn and how to do it, and the team was there to observe the children with minimum intervention. Ising's guiding principle was to avoid playing any authoritative role in the children's educational process. As the psychoanalyst John Rickman, who knew Isaacs in Cambridge, explained many years later, Isaacs didn't perceive the child as a quote lump of wax to be molded, but as a research worker in need of material and equipment. Unquote. Thus, at the Martin House, learning by experience replaced traditional authoritarian punishment, and the team forced children to comply only when the child could risk harming themselves or others. Rather than using all authoritarian methods, the team aimed to be completely honest with the children, taking full seriously all their questions and encouraging them to explore their own interests by themselves. But learning by experience also included letting them, I quote Isaacs, find out, for instance, what it feels like to hit and to be hit, to have one's beautiful tower knocked down by someone else who is careless or angry, or to suffer the anger of, of the owner of the tower if one knocks it down. The children were also in charge of many necessary tasks in their house, like deciding on weekly menus for the kitchen and getting in touch with suppliers. When the children forgot to order their food from the kitchen, as they did, as they had to do every week, um, they were compelled to have only apples and oranges for the whole week. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, we can talk about it. Um, um, in 1927, um, Isaacs and her husband, Isaacs, was also an educational thinker. The, quite interesting one, decided to, um, to leave the house after some disagreement um, had arisen between Pike and her. Um, and in 
as I see that I have something like two minutes, um, I'm jumping to the 1950s, and but I will just say that um, in the in the melting house, as you as as you can as you can see, the parents are were perceived as a destruction, as, as something that ch that children should be avoided of, um, because they they represented authority as such, and authority is bad. Now, if we look at the 50s, there is a totally, or the 40s, the 50s, the, it's, it's, the, there is a long history, there is a whole history to tell. It, it didn't, you know, it um, didn't suddenly emerge in the 50s. Um, parents, there, there, was, there was a totally different idea that not only parents are important, but the state itself is a parental entity. And therefore, it's, it's, it allowed to, it has the permission to intervene in people's life. And uh, it has um, it, it has some uh, some parental but also maternal capacity to to, um, to 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 fulfill. And I want to to um, the second case study is um, is actually I wanted to read um, a few paragraphs from a few sentences from um, from the memoir of um, of Caroline Stidman, um, "Land Space for a Good Woman," um, which is now kind of a classic. And when she described how the new Welfare measures taken during her childhood in the 1950s led her to believe that the state was taking a parental role in her own life, specifically in domains where these roles were missing. Like real parents, the state became for her a site onto which she could project a wide range of feelings, including hate and hostility, as well as grace and, and gratitude. Although she occasionally described the state's intervention in her life as traumatic, she still reminds herself and the readers that, I quote, being a child when the state was practically engaged in making children healthy and literate was a support against my own circumstances. Circumstances, sorry. Um, Stidman's uh, preoccupation with motherhood, even more uh, than other features in her stories, typical of the welfare culture uh, prevalent in Britain in the period following the Second World War. As uh, Bruce Robbins points out, at the contradictory heart of the book, ambivalence about Stidman's mother sheds into ambivalence about the state and about the state's um, action as, in effect, a parental surrogate. Um, Stidman's parents separated after her sister was born. And in fact, Stidman suggested, suggested the two events were linked. Her mother got pregnant in order to persuade her father to stay with them, a plan that failed. She, she has tried, I, I quote, she had tried with having me, and it hadn't worked. Now a second and final attempt. But um, as Robbins notes, Stedman also perceived the separation as a trade in which she lost a father but gained a sister. Thus, in gaining a sister, she enters, however unwillingly, into a more democratic condition, a condition in which she can no longer be a unique object of affection, but is obliged to share the available resources with someone equal, of equal status. Stigma personal story then is also an allegory for a more general transition from the democratic condition of working class patriarchy into a maternalistic social democracy where mothers, the biological one and the state, are dominant. Indeed, Stigman as a child perceived the state as a provider of maternal qualities. She writes, and I conclude with that, what my mother lacked, I was given. And though vast inequalities um, remain between me and others of my generation, the sense that the benevolent state 
bestowed on me that my own existence and the worth of that existence attenuated but still there demonstrates in some degree what a fully material culture might offer in terms of physical comfort and the structures of care, the affection that it symbolizes to all its children. And I think I'll stop here. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. So just in thinking about infant observation, what Anche shared with us, and then in thinking about these different ways in which the child might be educated and how that evolved in this historical process, there lies for me in there, in there this sort of question of for whose interest or whose interest is at stake and um, is that the child, the adult or the state itself and thinking about the state with its interest in the particular ways in which you might raise a, a productive um, or future citizen within a kind of mould or politics that is desired. Um, so in therapy we might assume or hope that the benefit is for the child, uh, but I think where state interests lie in the shaping future citizens and citizens, this interest is definitely muddied. And in this post-war history we find certain entanglements between the side professions and the state that make motivations questionable. So in the light of recent statistics, the impact of child assessment and examinations, for example, on mental health, I think that questioning becomes even more vital when we think about where education has gone now. Um, so as part of the Wonderblock project, I've been working with a group of teenagers from Parliament Hill School, which is local to here, and we've been considering ways in which those young people are influenced and the ways in which they would like to influence others. And they chose unanimously as a group to consider their education within which they felt that there was no space for critical reflection. Um, and in particular, they were concerned by the process of their assessment and the negative impact of examination on their peers. And this was a group of young people who were doing actually very well within that system, but were still deeply concerned by it and aware of its problematic nature of kind of where we've got to. Um, so a poster that was produced by those young people is on the door um, into this space. And they made that during a workshop that was held here, hosted by the teenagers I've been working with, four other people their own age. And this on it shares some of the statistics from the National Education Union that reported in 2018 that 82% of education staff believe tests and exams have the biggest impact on the mental health of pupils. That almost half, 49% of education staff say secondary school pupils have been suicidal because of stress. And 56% of pupils' mental health issues are leading to self-harm. And these are shocking statistics. It's horrific, actually, when you kind of look at what what kind of environment young people are having to kind of be processed through, um, and what's being um, assessed and understood in it within that um, system. And so, as the government moves to bring in assessment for four-year-olds, uh, it seems quite a pertinent moment for these teenagers to be raising this provocation of who are exams for, um, and who is education for. Um, and so as part of this evening, I wanted to draw on some of these historical uh, models that Shell started to introduce and to think about ways in which there are antidotes to those systems which are causing so much issues in the contemporary context um, and to consider other, op op or other options or ways of thinking um, around these sort of dangerous rites of passage that are more commonly established. Uh, so I'd now like to introduce our third speaker, Raman Fahangi who is a leading educator and advocate for democratic schooling. He's the co-founder of École Dynamique in Paris, which is based on the Sudbury concept whereby the school is run by a direct democracy in which students and staff have equal rights. Raman is also co-founder of UDEC France, a network of 38 democratic schools and 30 projects. 
His TED Talks have reached nearly 400,000 views and we're very happy he's been able to travel from Toulouse to be with us in this much more intimate setting this evening. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for <coughs> inviting. Um, I will assume, uh, since you're here, that you're a group of uh, rather curious and smart people who uh, know that there is not an easy way uh, or uh, a unique response to uh, what child rearing and education is about, and uh, I'm about actually to make it even much, much harder for you to, uh, <laughs> to have a definite response to uh, how we raise uh, children. I will start uh, with a quote from uh, Daniel Greenberg, who's the, one of the co-founders of Sudbury Valley School in Framingham uh, 50 years ago. It's a very special school I will talk, uh, talk about. Uh, so that I uh, first explain to you uh, what is the scope when I talk about education, what is the scope I mean. Uh, okay, for me, education is not a series of uh, academic activities you lead. And the definition of education that Daniel Greenberg uh, suggests is that education is a process through which a person uh, learns how to survive and lead a productive life. So figuring out how to survive and lead a meaningful life. You can, uh, in productive, it doesn't mean how much you produce. It rather means uh, leading a meaningful life. And so you can see how education for me encompasses much, 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 much more than what we, uh, what, than what I will call schooling, in fact, which is only a part of what education can be, or not. Some people don't use schooling in education. And I will also quote uh, Scott Gray, uh, who is uh, someone who has been active in Sudbury Valley School, I think, for 30 years or something. So, uh, <clears throat> he says that respect is faith that the person can take care of his own affairs. I thought it's a very nice way to define uh, respect. It means that you don't, uh, well, basically, you, you, you just consider that the other person doesn't uh, need to depend on you to, uh, to have his own inner mom and dad who can take care of himself, basically. And, uh, and when he, he says a person, uh, I, um, the, the thesis, the hypothesis we're making in our little world here is that the child is actually a person and that he can take care of his own affairs. So he's not a sub-person or a half-person, he's actually the whole person, and uh, and he can be uh, free. Uh, so my personal journey towards um, uh, getting to a Sudbury school, so I was a very uh, bright uh, student, went into one of the best engineering schools, I was a rather happy student uh, in France, I went three years to Cornell University uh, in the US as well, I worked for a few years for a, a consulting firm that uh, helps big organizations uh, make more profits, and then I thought, well, what a not very meaningful life that is, and uh, then I thought, why not just connect back to the 10-year-old, very smart kid I was who wanted to go into education and become a teacher, uh, because I admired my uh, fourth grade teacher at that time, and I thought, what a great idea to become a teacher. So I did that for a while. For three, three years, I was um, a teacher in math and physics in high school, and uh, I rapidly became very frustrated with the system because I discovered that there's a lot of teaching going on in these schools but not very much learning and and I realized that to learn um, when I, I thought about my own experience of intense uh, learning I remembered that I was intrinsically motivated and there was not much motivated in, motivation in schools I knew that I, I had uh, an unlimited amount of time in front of me to delve into uh, the domain I liked 
and the problem with school is that time is always limited and segmented and everything and when the bell rang you go from a thing to another and you don't actually uh, integrate stuff uh, and then I th thought that you needed a wide diversity of people of different levels of maturity so that we can share experiences and the fact that ages are segmented for example in schools I think is a big hindrance on, on learning so then I thought about did some people challenge uh, school the way I'm doing intellectually right now and I've discovered that for a century at least people had been doing that and in fact if you go back to Tolstoy he was a very libertarian uh, thinker in education and actually in England uh, there was an experience that lasted much longer and that's still lasting today, which is Summerhill, very well-known school founded by uh, Alexander Neal, uh, where children uh, were free to do whatever they want and they could, they could go to classes when they felt ready for it and wanted to. And then uh, Sudbury Valley School, which was founded in 1968, went even beyond uh, this uh, model and chose not to have even classes and professors and teachers or anything and just have a community life where children were fully free to do whatever they want, and uh, when children are actually fully free to do whatever they want, they don't choose to uh, hire uh, teachers and, and that kind of stuff. They actually mostly play, have conversations, and do art. And I, I hope I will have had a bit of time to define more what I mean about play, conversation, and art. Um, but first, uh, to be able to understand this school, actually, uh, I need to help you deconstruct a bit uh, before constructing something new. Uh, so. Uh, you know, people can be divided into two categories, uh, those who divide people in two categories and those who don't do this. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I will allow myself, uh, for the sake of uh, having only 10 minutes to, uh, and simplifying things, to be of the first category. Um, there's basically pragmatic thinking about schooling and idealist thinking about schooling. So if you're a pragmatic materialist thinker, you think like, okay, I need my uh, kid to have a job when he's older and be successful in life. So for that, he needs to have a good degree. So he needs to have good grades. So he needs to be starting to work seriously as a student from a very young age and, and work his ass off so that he can get to this ultimate result, which is the conditions for his social survival and his uh, welfare. So this is why there's so much pressure on kids to have good grades because most people think about schooling in pragmatic ways, in these ways. There's also idealist thinkers, so utopian thinkers about education who think that we can make, uh, you know, humanist uh, good citizens if we uh, get them through an academic um, curriculum where they will study science and math and uh, these kinds of things that will uh, help them grow their critical thinking and then become good citizens. Um, and also many people believe that uh, school is very egalitarian because everyone starts, you know, at the same uh, level and uh, it's a very meritocratic system which doesn't which kind of uh, compensates for the differences in social and economic backgrounds and of course these uh, thoughts have been uh, widely uh, challenged at least for uh, since this uh, Bourdieu's studies of how in fact school um, uh, encourages social reproduction rather than compensate for it uh, and whether you are pragmatic or idealist, you basically agree that kids obviously need to, to, to get schooled, and this is the, uh, the, the consensus, there's no question asked. Uh, and then there's two other categories, I won't go too much into it, but there's uh, basically nostalgic thinkers of schooling and progressive thinkers of schooling. Nostalgic thinkers are more about like how great it was before when the, when the teacher was considered as the master and he had all the power and children were just very submissive to him and all that. Uh, and that during this time they actually managed to uh, 
to get children educated and that today with the child-centered progressive schooling where we focus a lot on children's welfare and we help them uh, get to places and where the parents can challenge the teacher a lot and where the children is king somehow this is uh, you know something that's uh, uh, that's basically a deviance from uh, building a building a state and a nation that is that is healthy um, you know I'm neither idealistic or materialistic I'm neither progressive or a nostalgic thinker uh, of schooling I'm basically an unschooler so I, I just think outside of schooling and I don't really care about schooling I think this is a uh, something weird to do actually with children and I don't think they need it at all in fact so um, so basically I'm uh, away from this 99.999% consensus that children need to be schooled and uh, therefore I'm from a category that you don't even know about uh, there's the usual people so the 99.99999% and I'm a very unusual person who will suggest that we can do something completely different so um, uh, so there's at least uh, two kinds of very small minorities who are like me, the people who live in, uh, as hunter-gatherer tribes in the Kalahari Desert or the Am Amazon uh, forest, and of course they don't school their kids. It would be very uh, dangerous for their sur survival if they wasted so much time on uh, Newton and Pythagoras uh, theories. I mean, they better learn what plants to eat and not, and how to hunt and, uh, and how to fish. So, uh, and, and I'm the, from a, another a uh, world where we lived through all this uh, schooling system and everything and challenged it and came to the conclusion that all of this we can just throw away and do something completely different. And what is this completely different thing? Um, well, first, uh, two reasons why uh, I came to this conclusion. First, experience. I mean, uh, my frustrating experience in the schooling world and also the fact that I met... Okay, I have two minutes, right? Um, also the fact that I met uh, some children who never went to school and uh, have many testimonies from a hundred years of experience of children who never actually neither went to school nor studied any school subjects and just did whatever they like to do and who are you know very uh, bright beautiful people who are very smart and uh, lead very meaningful and productive lives <clears throat> so it means that the ultimate goal of education has been pursued here without the need for school. And to give very quick examples, uh, there's a girl who did only uh, photography and cooking uh, as you know activities that you can identify beyond conversation, play, and art. Uh, while she was at Sudbury School from age four to eighteen, and she's well known for having done the documentary Citizen Four, which has an Oscar, <coughs> and which talks about Edward Snowden doing his revelations about the NSA. Um, <coughs> and other children who did mostly fishing for five years between ages 10 and 15. Actually, that's the only thing he did. And then he became a happy uh, person doing a career in, uh, in computer hardware and being very good at it. So I think these two stories are among tens of thousands of stories that completely challenge the idea that school is uh, an obvious thing that absolutely everyone should do. Uh, and if you don't do it, uh, horrible things will happen to you. And these actually are proofs that this is not the case. Um, then, uh, to finish, uh, I will say that these schools are very adapted to the postmodern world in the meaning that uh, the fantasy with which we can have a certain religion or a nation that gives kind of a common meaning to everyone and where everyone kind of pursues a common goal is pretty much dead. I mean, since Nietzsche said that God is dead and 
now nations are not really that much important, I think, in people's minds in terms of building a meaningful life. And we're all exposed to a wide variety of possible meanings, and we kind of construct our worldviews according to many, many different sources of inspiration that uh, help us build worldviews. World uh, and this is basically what the postmodern world is about. I mean, the transition from the modern to the postmodern modern is that uh, the common meanings uh, have uh, decreased a lot in importance. And when you have a school like this, which is very uh, individualistic in the, in the ideology, uh, ideology of it, um, it means that uh, you know, the, these children spend some time uh, outside of the uh, family community. So they come to go to a school and they're exposed to a wide variety of people with different levels of maturity and different worldviews and different cultures and everything. And uh, this is a place where they can do kind of the, one of the uh, most important artwork, which is actually to create their own worldview. What I mean by art is actually creation. So they create their worldview, they, are, they create their own fictions on the basis of uh, interacting freely with their environment. And while they uh, are at school, uh, what I mean by play, which is one of basically when you leave the children alone, he, he will play all the time. And playing is basically uh, the activity that we all naturally have that emanates from our curiosity about the world. We're going to try things out to figure things out. I and mean, basically, that's what play is about. You try things out. You, uh, some babies, you see, they try something out for 10 times because they want to check it out, right? I mean, they, they keep checking things out. And they, uh, they evolve like little scientists who are trying to figure the thing, their environment around them. And these are essential activities to... Uh, uh, again, build your worldview and, and, and survive in this world. And um, the, uh, I will finish here with this um, uh, statement about conversation, which is that uh, school uh, hinders a lot of these activities, art, play, and conversation. And these are actually the fundamental tools that are sufficient and essential for education. What is conversation about is you have a worldview, I have a worldview, and uh, I have my own experience with words and they have a specific meaning for me. You have your own experience with words that have a specific meaning for you. And when we're communicating and, uh, and sharing this way, we are in the process of, in fact, updating our, uh, our worldviews and challenging them uh, between each other and so uh, dynamically evolving as a result uh, of this. And this is why uh, when you find people who are left freely around, they converse and converse and converse all the time because they have the uh, intuition that they fundamentally need this to figure things out and evolve as persons and lead a more meaningful life and be able to uh, uh, basically live a more and more productive life in the milieu, in the environment in which uh, they are. So um, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so what interested me in Raman's ideas of childhood and just doing away with Schooling was addressed for me really um, a key issue in thinking about childhood and how we understand development, how we observe it, how we assess it or how we measure it and if we should be doing those things. Um, and really the key question for me in that is the possibility of failure when one assesses something and should it be possible for a child to fail. Um, and in thinking about this exhibition and what's innate to the child or the agency of the child, thinking then you know, what, if, if a child does fail or is assessed to have failed, then to what do we put that down to? And is there something inherent to the child that means that they are a failure? Is it something they have knowingly chosen? Or is it rather that the child has failed by those on whom they are reliant? Um, 
and so with the conversations we've been having with the teenagers and thinking this through, we discussed about, you know, should examination not be of the children, but the education system itself, and to ask of each institution or any institution educating children, are you allowing for every child to reach their full potential? And if not, how might that be considered failure? Um, and this brings us on a somewhat circuitous route to our second area of discussion for this evening, which is about who is responsible and for the laying of this responsibility with the mother. So we've discussed already the sort of entanglement of the role of the state in taking on this mother or parental role in some of these histories. Um, but when researching this post-war history, I was quite struck by the quantity of advice that was primarily produced by men and addressed to women on how to mother. Um, so Winnicott gave us the idea of the good enough mother, uh, but it was still notably the mother as opposed to a parent. And Bowlby's work on attachment, on the other hand, spelled out the dangers of separation of mother and child. And in this sort of monumental historic move that women had made from the home and into the workplace during the war, the return of men from war coincided with a warning to mothers that to leave your children would result in raising warmongering citizens. So while family models and roles have shifted somewhat in recent years, the culpability of the mother feels to me quite a dominant zeitgeist. And mothers statistically taking on still the majority of childcare and what is described as the lion's share of the mental load of ensuring child, child, children's needs are met. Um, so it's with great pleasure that I'd like to introduce our final speaker, Helen McCarthy, who's going to speak on how psychoanalysis in this post-war history did and did not influence mothers. Um, so Helen is University Lecturer in Modern British History at the University of Cambridge and a fellow at St John's <coughs> College. Her current book project explores the histories of women, mothering and paid work in the 19th and 20th centuries and will be published as Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Emma, for inviting me to join the panel. It's been totally fascinating um, already. Uh, so yes, I'm going to spend my 10 minutes or so um, talking about mothers. Uh, and as has already been alluded to, mid-20th century psychoanalysts like John Bowlby and Donald Winnicott place great emphasis on continuous maternal care as a precondition for healthy child development. Uh, this was a prominent part of the message that they promoted to the general public uh, through their popular writings and radio broadcasts from the mid-1940s onwards. And because of this strong focus on maternal responsibility, feminists who are writing about these texts in the 1970s tended to frame the influence of psychoanalysis uh, in a deeply unfavourable light. So holding Bowlby responsible for the closure of the war nurseries, which had helped tens of thousands of working mothers um, in industry during the war, um, and for ensuring more generally that mothers would continue to feel psychologically tied down to their homes and their children well into the post-war period. The novelist Faye Weldon commented that Bowlby wrote about the trauma of mother-child separation so forcibly that he terrified a whole generation of middle-class women into clutching their children's hands every minute of their dependency. Um, and the journalist Valerie Grove agreed that his work fostered an immense amount of guilt and that his claim that separation caused delinquency became folklore. Now, we know from the pioneering work of Denise Riley that psychoanalytic influences on policymaking at the end of the Second World War were actually far more complicated than that um, narrative would suggest. Um, and we know from the work of Mikhail Shapira, Angela Davis, uh, Selena Todd and others that psychoanalytic perspectives did become integral to child welfare training, social work training, um, thinking and, and policy around juvenile delinquency, um, but that 
those perspectives were not necessarily hegemonic when it came to practice on the ground. Um, and we know from Matthew Thompson's important discussion of Bowlby in his book Lost Freedom that the influence of psychoanalysis could point in multiple directions. It could reinforce women's sense of um, unique responsibility for maintaining the home as a place of emotional security, but it could also enable more permissive and creative parenting styles and freer emotional expression um, within the home. Um, and so in my comments, I want to extend this more nuanced picture by making really just two points. The first is about the multiple sources of knowledge and understanding about good or appropriate parenting which were available to mothers in the post-war period. Um, and the second point is about the growing importance attached to the emotional needs not just of children, but also of mothers themselves, particularly in relation uh, to taking on paid work, which is the, the part of the story that I'm most interested in. So one of the challenges facing the historian of family or, family or parenting is weighing the impact of prescriptive expertise alongside what we might call vernacular knowledge about what kind of care small children need. It's much easier to reconstruct what doctors, midwives, health visitors, social workers were telling mothers to do. Um, it's fairly easy to reconstruct what childcare experts, including our psychoanalysts, thought mothers ought to be doing. Uh, we can read their books, we can read their articles, we can, read their, we can listen to their broadcasts and so on. And we can also reconstruct official ideology on these subjects by looking at policy around things like day nurseries or maternity rights and so on. But it's much harder to reconstruct what mothers actually did, uh, and it's even harder to recover how they felt about this expert prescriptive advice that was coming at them from all directions. But we do have sources for the post-war period that can help us here. Um, there's a wealth of social survey material being produced in the 1950s and 60s by sociologists and researchers about the family and about parenting. This, of course, is a moment of transformation for the social sciences um, in the UK. Uh, and we have life writing sources and we also have oral histories. And this material, of course, has to be handled very carefully. But from my reading of a sort of fairly sizable chunk of it, um, I can see one point cutting through. And that is that mothers drew from a range of sources when making choices about how to care for their children, including whether and when to seek paid work outside the home. Psychoanalytic ideas about the child as emotionally vulnerable and in need of continuous maternal care certainly becomes a very powerful part of the mix in these decades. But I would argue that they map onto much older ideologies of maternal sacrifice and devotion, some you know, dating back to the 19th century, and that they are always competing with vernacular traditions and norms around childcare, which might be class-specific, might be peculiar to localities or particular groups, including particular migrant communities in post-war Britain. Um, so two very brief examples just to illustrate this. Uh, I've looked at around 200 questionnaire replies to a survey that was sent out to graduate wives and mothers in the early 1960s by the British Federation of University Women, asking them about their family and career choices. Um, and what really comes through in these replies is, yes, a very strong sense of responsibility on the part of these mothers uh, to maintain the home as a place of emotional security for their children, and their physical presence inside the home is seen as a very important part of this. But of all those replies, 
perhaps only half a dozen engage in what we might call psychoanalytic talk. Um, and no one names any psychoanalyst um, in, uh, directly. No one refers to Bowlby or Winnicott or anyone else directly um, in, these, in these questionnaires. Quite a sizable minority of these graduate wives are still sending their children to boarding school um, in the 60s. And when they talk about their duties to the family, they're as frequently talking about the duties they owe their husbands uh, as they are talking about the duties that they owe their children. So there are kind of older norms here about wifely duties and about male domestic authority that are still very evident. And I think we have to consider how psychoanalytic ideas, how new ideas about um, the emotional vulnerabilities of children are kind of mapping onto and intersecting with these um, pre-war traditions and norms. Um, my second example very briefly, comes from Pearl Jeffcott's pioneering study of working wives in Bermondsey in South London, based on fieldwork that she carried out there in the late 1950s. And it's a really wonderfully rich study. Um, but when it comes to decision-making about childcare, what comes across in, um, from Jeffcott's uh, research is the importance not of Bowlbyism, but of what Jeffcott calls Bermondsey. Um, and what she means by this was, um, is that the embedded community norms about acceptable parenting that were operational in this particular white, homogenous, working-class community. Um, so if a young mother in Bermondsey with a baby wanted to get a part-time job in the local biscuit factory uh, and she could get her mum to look after the baby while she was working or she could get an evening shift and her husband could look after the baby, then that was fine. No one really had a problem with that. If she wanted to work full-time and put the baby in a day nursery under the charge of an uppity middle-class matron, um, that was a different story. Um, but the issue there is not about bulbious prescriptions about the evils of, of day nurseries. It's actually the pull of much older traditions around childminding in these kinds of, of working class communities. Um, and but, um, Jeff Cott's Bermondsey study is a nice segue to my second point, which I'll try to make succinctly um, and then stop talking. Um, so, but, um, so Jeff Cott observed amongst these working wives that she was um, researching uh, who were going out to work, that they, they talked very much about the pleasure that they derived from what were actually pretty low-grade jobs. They were packing biscuits, or they were working in a shop, or they were sitting on an assembly line in a factory. But these women liked the feeling of getting an independent income. Um, they liked the sociability of the workplace. They liked getting a break from housework and childcare. And they liked the sense of pulling together with their husbands as members of dual earner households. And this was something which Jeff Cott very much approved of um, and which she saw as deeply significant. She thought that this signalled new psychological needs on the part of women um, that were becoming increasingly prominent in the 1950s and 60s and which paid work outside the home met. Um, and this idea that paid work has a kind of broader therapeutic um, benefit for mothers gains broad legitimacy in this period. There's a sense that going back to work, particularly when children are old enough to go to school, particularly when there are part-time jobs available to mothers, um, this is a good thing for the stability of marriage, for the stability of families, it's good for mothers. Um, and this, this is a really fascinating sort of shift that we see happening um, uh, in post-war Britain. And I think, you know, how, do we, how should we read this shift? I think one way of reading it is to argue 
as Denise Riley does, of the pronatalist discourse that's very dominant in Britain in the late 1940s, that in ideological terms, this is a conservative move. Um, that is to say, it gives mothers a small outlet for their frustrations, a small space through which they can escape their isolation by taking on low-paid part-time jobs, but for the rest of the time carrying on doing what they were doing before, which is servicing children, servicing husbands, servicing homes. Um, and therefore the sexual division of labour is left um, preserved. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for that reading. But I think that another reading is possible. Um, and that is to say that mothers are finding ways to co-opt the broader, more culturally diffuse language of psychology, which is becoming increasingly perverse, uh, pervasive um, across uh, post-war society, in order to make claims about their own emotional needs for a life beyond marriage and maternity. Um, and in a sense, this is what Carolyn Stephen's mother is doing in this book, and this is partly what that book is about, about the mother articulating her own and asserting her own emotional needs. Um, and in, in a sense, one could push that further and say that this even is, is sort of let, doing some of the groundwork for the much bolder, more radical claims that feminists will make in the 1970s about women's right to autonomy and self-actualization and to the broader processes of individualization that we associate with late modernity. So in a sense, I'm trying to kind of flip the conventional feminist critique of Bowlbyism on its head and suggesting that we might see mid-century psychoanalysis as helping to fuel this broader trend towards psychologically inflected notions of the self, which then gives mothers a space in which they can say, my emotional needs matter as well. Um, and so, just to conclude, I think there is this, a kind of double legacy um, of mid-century psychoanalysis for mothers. It prescribes the subordination of the maternal self, but at the same time help to sow the seeds of women's resistance to such prescriptions and give them a sense of entitlement uh, to making a life of their own. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, so I want to move fairly swiftly into opening up so we can chat together. Um, I think it was nice for me to kind of come back to um, this idea of kind of inverting... Um, histories of agency, I suppose, in my starting point of the exhibition being very much about thinking about the agency of the child and then interested in with, uh, what Helen supports that and thinking about the mother as not necessarily also susceptible to these kind of ideas that are promoted in this historical period, but then potentially the concerns also that come from thinking about these entrenched, more entrenched histories actually and how we move, um, move away from them. And so I suppose my question, thinking about how susceptible uh, to the child becomes reflected back on myself as an adult and thinking to how how susceptible are we um, and how is it possible to think in ways which can do away with histories or kind of think in radically different ways as Raman started to share with us um, this evening and I think I'm also interested to think about how we, what you know what can we learn from the histories that we have in a, in a more critical reflective manner uh, but also from thinking from the side disciplines in what I'm very interested, intrigued by, really, and particularly in this observation process of what is the development of more tacit forms of knowledge or of being together and in this observation process of this being with one another, somehow generating knowledge or being um, useful or a learning space, which to me is the realm of art practice and that this is very much a space of tacit knowledge, of developing through doing um, and of being. 
um, and not necessarily something that one can articulate. And so I, my sort of question really is to how can we take all of these things um, in a useful way? But it would be, I think, good to open up um, to see what comments or questions there may be, either um, from anyone on the panel to anyone else on the panel, but also from the from the floor. Did anyone have anything pressing they needed to say to each other here? Does anyone have anything that they want to ask? So it's always a bit intimidating when you're the first, first one. I can ask a question in that case. Mm -hmm. This may be outside of the scope of the conversation tonight, but I was kind of wondering if there are similarities or sort of great differences across cultures. You mentioned the people of the Kalahari Desert, but you know other less extreme examples. Um, from other cultures, do they share um, some of the ideas about children's agency, either in a positive or a negative way, or you know, are there different experiences across different cultures, either in the past or in the present, but in different areas? Or if anybody has any. Um, there's a worldwide consensus that children need schooling, and even those who don't have access to schooling, they hope uh, soon to be colonized with the same uh, Western view of what education is about. So this is why I mentioned the two extremes of uh, post-postmodern people who are like me and uh, and those who are actually uh, who, who were never colonized uh, by modernity. Uh, so no, there's no. Uh, Place I know of where they think of the children of the child as possibly being a person with his own uh, agency it doesn't really exist that much. Um, yeah. Can I? Um, part of what I think is so important about historicizing psychoanalysis and understanding the historical moment that produced it is so that you know we don't reproduce unthinkingly or uncritically the. The truths about human nature, I guess, that psychoanalysts thought they were discovering, um, and I mean, to take the the case of of Britain, um, it becomes very clear just how sort of culturally specific and historically specific um, some of the ideas associated with Bowlby um, were when migrant mothers appear on the scene, um, particularly mothers from West Africa um, and the Caribbean and are labelled as deficient, and their mothering practices are um, problematised and are you know, framed as pathological. Yeah, so partly, um, well, there, I mean, there are lots of things going on. Partly it's because the um, these black mothers are too focused on going out and earning and saving, and they're too materialistic, and they ought to actually, you know, they ought to recognise that it's more important that they're at home with their children. But even the, the mothers who, who are staying at home with the children, they're not interacting with their children in the, right, in the correct way. So I think that gives you a very, very kind of stark kind of proof, you know, just of how these ideas about, about good mothering and what is natural and normal and what is sort of the right instinct and the correct emotions. And this is something which second wave feminists do try to kind of break down and deconstruct and push back against to some extent, I think, in the 70s. There's this idea of correct emotions um, towards your children. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's one thing. I, so that's why I think, you know, his, his, historicizing psychoanalysis is so important. Yeah, I, I agree. I also, I'm thinking, um, I did, 
I thought to mention it today, but uh, we have only 10 minutes, so um, but I will mention it now. Um, that I was part of my work is um, is on sound anthropologists in the 1930s, who um, who anthropologists who were interested in psychoanal psychoanalysis, some of them were psychoanalysts, who went to um, to study the pr primitive so-called primitive children, primitive mothers, and they totally, um, I, it was, they came back with, with, um, with kind of, um, with a um, harsh critique of, of, of modernity in general, but of also of, um, of Western mothers, and I think some of these texts are quite misogynist, they really try to idealize primitive mothers, uh, only in order to, um, in order only to, um, to kind of to, um, um, to dismiss Western mothers and to say that they, they actually took to, to, um, to, to put the, the totalitarian crisis and the fascist crisis of the 1930s as a crisis of motherhood, and um, and this is this is kind of. Um, it, it can, there is a long tradition of blaming blaming mothers for for basically everything, <laughs> and, um, and um, it's it's interesting because one of the, one of them, Giza Wem, why 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 study, um, he he mentioned somewhere that um, that actually you can still find some good mothers in Western societies among the working classes. Mm. So the working and the, the, if we read it carefully, what it means is that the working class people are still a bit primitive, and therefore their mothers are still they, they manage to preserve some of the good qualities of the of the good primitive mother, so-called primitive mother. So yeah, so I'm like like um, I'm I'm quite um, I think we should be quite critical when when um, when kind of um, looking beyond the West, or south of the West. I'd love to hear the panel's views on, on um, learning difficulties of a concept of special educational needs, and in relation to testing on it. So, I mean, uh, so a lot of my work has involved working with children and adults with multiple plan special needs and um, in some like there's um, I suppose that my approach to think about how you share um, an art process or how do you make art together is always um, in the first instance having social practice based on how do you meet somebody um, and on what terms do you meet somebody and strange like what's kind of a bit messed up with um, the way that I often get commissioned into working in particular environments is that you're there in a curative capacity as an artist and you're often commissioned to be working with particular groups that have been targeted as having some kind of difficulty disability being hard to reach that have been put in some bracket of lack of that state of lack that you as an artist will somehow come in and fix for everybody and make them feel better um, which is a horrific power dynamic. Um, and so there's always a, um, a negotiation process, first of all, of the terms of meeting and what does it mean to come together as people in the same space and do something together. And, and that, for me, always needs to be a space of uh, equality, but also a space within which any person coming into that space is a contributor. And so I'm 
going to work with people on the, on the basis that I will offer everything that I can offer into that space and also create space or a way of working where everybody else can do so but from their own expertise um, and, I th- and so I think this is um, then applies across working with anyone of just thinking what's what is it that any individual does what's their kind of interest what's their expertise what's their knowledge what's their approach and actually how can that be something that's mutually learned from and so how do you create spaces where you can um, share knowledge in ways which aren't pre-prescribed or aren't defined as this is what you need to be learning or this is what um, you should know or should be doing but thinking what do you do and what can you do and, and actually that you know, there's every single human being on the planet has something extraordinary that they think about and do and so it's just understanding and finding ways that you can elicit that and then bring that together in a way that you can then produce something together and that to me is at the heart of then what makes collaboration and in the way that I would think about making um, making work but I think in that space then if you're thinking just about the nuance of um, who people are and how you come together based on what each of you kind of fi- finds interesting or ways of doing um, then you can start to kind of um, do away with kind of ideas of, I suppose of, of who then what status there might be within that kind of uh, doing space speaking about um, uh, sorry guys special education needs. I was kind of thinking a little bit more, oh, thank you for that uh, response, it was, really, it was really interesting, but I was also thinking about um, children in school who, ha- you know, uh, might have, you know, dyspraxia, dyslexia, mm-hmm. uh, autism, you know, that, that sort of spectrum, uh, those spectrum divisions and, um, you know, uh, how they are sort of blighted in a, in a, in a, um, For sure, for example, if you created at age six a norm that said that um, you know all kids should learn how to play basketball or dance a certain dance, uh, you, you will produce a special needs because some uh, kids will not have the motivation or development or they will not be at a stage in their development where they are at ease of, uh, doing, of uh, accomplishing the challenge of being a good dancer or a good basketball player. So we will have this uh, body, I don't know, there will be a new word for it, right? So special needs appear with the norm. So dyslexia appears because there's a norm that at age six, if you want to survive through schooling, you'd better learn how to read. And when by age seven you still don't know how to read, there's a, a specialist who will go, go like, okay, how are we going to do it with, with that person? And when you just leave the kids alone and, and don't uh, interfere with their uh, learning, uh, some of them learn at age four, others learn at age 13, and that's just fine. And there's no dyslexia. So. Sudbury Valley School has 50 years of experience without having had the need to diagnose any of the kids who went through the school, and they had thousands of kids. And since there are 15% of of diagnosed dyslexia uh, children in the area of uh, Massachusetts, uh, it means that probably uh, they were beyond 15%, because a lot of the kids who go to Sudbury Valley School, of course, had issues with conventional schooling. So so probably they had more than 20, 25% of... um, children who were diagnosed with dyslexia who came, and as soon as they came to Sudbury Valley School, the label was not necessary anymore. They could just live their own lives, play, have conversations, do whatever they want. And since um, figuring the world out, uh, I mean, reading is, of course, uh, obvious as being a survival tool in the information age, and, you know, uh, while they learn, they figure it out at some point through their own strategy.
Well, I, I obviously would take a slightly different uh, stance because I do think that there are some children who are blocked in their learning because of anxieties of previous traumas who need to be helped, um, you know, who won't just uh, in the free environment learn to, to, to read or whatever. They might need uh, someone who can make sense of what they are afraid of, uh, possibly in their learning or, uh, you know, how they are blocked in their emotional relationship with adults. And I do think sometimes they need to be, you know, there's specialist a, there's a role in of intervention. In the school, mm. am I right? So that, because I'm just thinking back to what I was thinking about how you kind of create these spaces where you're not, like, for me in an education space, I'm not, I'm not just facilitating, I'm not just kind of like, here's you and you, I kind of have made this space within which you can do stuff, but you're kind of, you're an active contributor and everybody's there kind of doing, but am I right that there, I mean, there are members of staff, as it were, they just are, there's, there's adults in this world of, you know, that, and then what's their, what's their role? I mean, the role, the role is to offer an environment where people can live freely. They, they don't go around going like, ah, oh, maybe I can do something for that person wherever he's at. They don't perceive themselves as any kind of god who would be able to know, like, the, you know, the infinite history and the amount of interactions that the child had and what uh, the, his future should be like. I mean, they're, they're just basically the Socratic approach of, I know nothing about what that child is supposed to do as a next step. So, yeah, they just sit back and relax and they and they're just very patient people, and the parents as well. And this is why some uh, children are able to, in a very relaxed way, to wait until they're 11, 12, or 13 to even start to get interested in reading. And then most of them actually become very avid uh, readers. Uh, and, and in fact, they even saw that the later readers, usually they, um, they go more into intellectual and academic careers, which is uh, quite fascinating when you, when you see how, how many... Uh, children, children were probably suppressed in their talent, uh, in their natural uh, talent and aspiration to uh, grow intellectually, uh, because at a at a too early age they were coerced uh, or cajoled towards uh, trying to learn how to read, and it was probably more counterproductive and maybe provoked all the anxieties you're talking about rather than uh, help them out through the process. I mean, if you if you just let them be, I'll just give you a very quick example. I mean, there's uh, the daughter of one of my friends. Uh, she was eight years old when she started getting interested in reading. I, I don't remember for what reason, but her strategy was just she gave a book to uh, a person in the school, and it's sometimes an adult and sometimes uh, another children, uh, another child. I mean, uh, just people she liked to, to hang out with. And she told them, can you uh, read this part to me? And the person would start reading. Uh, maybe two lines or three lines or a whole paragraph, and then she would like, okay, that's okay. And she did that for two weeks, and at the end of the two weeks, she could uh, read in a fluid way. That was it. And of course, so there's not a unique method to learn how to read. There's an illusion that we could, that we can teach in a unique method. Uh, to the, and that's why I'm saying that there's a lot of teaching going on and not much learning, because when you look at learning, it's such a complex, misunderstood process that uh, it doesn't happens through teaching like this. And I'm just quite curious about that kind of model. At what point do we think in going back to infants and the start, at what point do children start the journey of freedom and kind of, you know, 
where this happened, where the role of the parental relationship was found, or in what point? I think the fetuses are so kind of in utero. School start at four because this is where they have su sufficient language to be autonomous in a collective environment. So they have four years of some kind of relationships with adults and those kind of rules. And other children, it depends this on. This is also a normal school, I was just having a high school. I work with infants and I work with children, and I actually I agree actually that you know, children, in a way, need adults or other people, brothers, sisters, to, to have a world. <coughs> It's impossible to live without other people. That's just basic living in the world. Um, we're getting relatively near the end, so I know there's a question from. Um, well, I, I just wanted Daniel, to come so bring back the historians and antiquarians, because uh, uh, I, mean, I, I think one has to have. I think of Susan Isaacs's critical reflection on her own utopian romantic Baltic house thing, which I thought the point was well made, you know, uh, as well. But I, I want to come back, in a way, historically to another term. So there's sort of, in this, there's learning and feeling uh, that have been sort of referred to in a way. But there's also thinking as another key term in this. And I think one of the things I've always found interesting with the brainwashing literature is that it was, in a way, a foil for thinking about thinking. Because it was, in a way, these post-war terms became a new way to think about the problem that people have in thinking, was it sort of impediments internal and external. To thinking. So I was thinking in this story that the historians are telling us, and also what Antje said at the beginning, that Dion's work is interesting in this regard, because he, I think, thinks hard about thinking and in relation to feeling and learning. But what is it to think? And what would a theory of thinking actually entail? You know, if you bring two people into it, or more than two people, that uh, two minds, but also intrapsychically of what's going on. So I just think that's historically interesting, but also clinically important of what is it to think and like, why is it so difficult to, to think. And just finally, just to add, I just want to come back to Emma, and I, I thought also very so interesting and rich what you were saying about uh, the, the role of the, the process for you in producing a show of engagement with providing the means to children or uh, some of the sessions you've held. So I was just really wanted to invite you to say more about that, because I found out in parallel with this Project. We've had school kids in Camden making video essays which people can see on the website of the Hidden Persuaders Project if they're interested. I think, again, of giving people the means to sort of try to think through, could be, I suppose, with paint and art, it can also be with film or with other, other means. But I found that very, anyway, very interesting to me to, to see what young people make of these themes when you kind of give them resources. I just wanted to be hoping you might say even more about what you encountered when you were, had these sort of, in a way, encounter groups with people about your own project. Mm, sure. Um, so my immediate thought when you're talking about thinking is to also just trouble that with where that happens in the body, um, which is something I think about a lot with um, art production, and to think about that thinking doesn't necessarily happen in your head. Um, Fred Cummins, who's, a very, um, who's an interesting academic in uh, Dublin, has this sort of saying that if your brain was up your ass, you'd still think with your head. But I think... Um, there's there's something 
uh, important to say, and I feel very strongly from a making perspective or a doing perspective and being as an artist, that thinking is a bodily exercise. Um, and so we think with all parts of ourselves. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in terms of working with people and producing this show, I was primarily working with uh, early years, with two to four year olds. Um, and that's been a real pleasure to think through and in a way coming back to the questions around what the expertise of the child are and how do you work with people who have um, also an array of different um, things that they might bring to a project. Like working with early years is always the most fantastic way of expanding your horizons as to what you might think you might be doing because they're the most capable at thinking outside the box. Um, and so it's been a it's been a real joy, I suppose, to um, to to make um, to make work in that collaborative process, where there haven't been <coughs> these periods of kind of entrenchment or um, histories or learning that's been kind of too um, too set. And when you talk to a a two year old around what does frustration look like or what does um, what does xenophobia mean, um, there's there's a completely radical um, way of approaching those topics that actually is really healthy, um, but that I kind of, I think that we learn from in both directions. And so for me also, I suppose, in the questions that we've been having around where the adult and child world sit together, this, this is a two-directional um, relationship, but the learning happens in both, in both ways. Um, and so I've, you know, I don't, approach a two-year-old to collaborate to think I'm going to come and share with you how the world is we're going to do something together and in in that experience of being and doing together hopefully we learn from each other um so yeah I think maybe we might wrap up on that but I'm sure there's um reflections and other questions and things that you might have and it's like obviously like we've been kind of trying to get through huge amounts and just kind of open up little bits of these different areas um this evening, but if anyone has um, comments or things that they kind of have been thinking about, we'd love to hear them. We've some surreptitiously and randomly stuck a post-it note on each of your chairs, so if anybody has any sort of comments or questions that you didn't get the chance to share this evening or wanted to, we would love, love to hear them, and we'll stick a just a piece of paper on the door on the way out for you to pop any of those on. Um, is there anything else that we need to say? So just thank you very much to all the speakers on the panel for joining me this evening. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you all and thank you very much for joining us.